Will you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon? Philemon. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back with those Bibles in hand. If you need one, just get their attention and they'll get those to you. And they're helpfully marked at Philemon because if you don't have your books of the New Testament memorized, you might have a hard time finding Philemon. It's only one chapter, so just one page in most of your Bibles. It is between Titus and Hebrews. If you're fumbling through and you find Hebrews, then go to the beginning of Hebrews and it'll be the page before. Before we get into our message, I wanted to say a special welcome to someone who's not been able to be around for several months uh, because of injury, and that's Smokey Allen. Smokey is back. We've been praying for her for these months because she had a horrific fall, you all know, and uh, she's going to have complications, they say, going forward with her, her shoulder. She's got a sling on for her shoulder and arm now, but this is the first time in several months she's been able to be back, so we praise the Lord for that progress. A few years ago, I had gone to Florida for a few days for a, a board meeting at Clearwater Christian College. And on my return, I got to do something I've had opportunity to do perhaps three or four times in my life. I flew home in first class. Now, in the handful of times that I've done that, I've never paid for it because it's uh, way too expensive. But one time it was given to me by a friend who worked for an airline, and other times I was simply awarded that because I had miles, uh, built up miles, because I had made a couple of trips to India and China. So on this flight, my seat was supposed to be, as always, in coach, but when I gave my boarding pass, as we got on the plane, they handed me a ticket with a different seat assignment, 1A. Well, look at me, 1A. There's only one seat next to you when you're in first class, and the one next to my seat was empty until just literally a few moments before we took off, and an older gentleman arrived, and he was catered to immediately by the flight attendants. They took his sport jacket, and they hung it up. They greeted him as Mr., and he sat down next to me and introduced himself. Hi, I'm Jim. We struck up, struck up a conversation. I asked, were you in Florida on business or pleasure? He said a little of both. He said he has a place in Florida that he comes to often. He also has business there. He told me the headquarters of his company is in Ann Arbor. I asked about his line of work. He said he owned a software company. A little later, I asked the name of the company, and when he said Wolverine Technical Services, I said, I used to work for you. I said, Jim, you're the Dr. James Irwin whose signature I'd see on my checks, but I never knew who the guy was. And we then talked about who I knew at the company, and I mentioned that I was recruited to that company by a woman whose name I couldn't quite recall, but she was known widely in the computer field back in the day, was very good at what she did, and I added, she was a bit of a character. We both racked our brains trying to think of her name, but we couldn't. Our conversation faded. Jim took a nap and I read a book, but I really couldn't concentrate because I was trying to think of this lady's name. And then finally it hit me, Millie Michaels. And when Jim wakes up, I'll tell him, I thought to myself. So he woke up, he went to the restroom. When he returned, as he was starting to sit down, I said, Millie Michaels, to which he immediately responded, best in the business. I've been married to her for 47 years.
Now that led to a conversation about Millie and him explaining about why she kept her maiden name for professional reasons and me rewinding the tape of the conversation in my mind <laughs> thinking about what I had said about his wife. Now thankfully I had praised her work but I had added she's a bit of a character. And he told me that Millie has since retired from the business. Now, what are the chances of me sitting next to the guy whose company that I worked for and whose wife recruited me to it? It's fascinating to think about the confluence of circumstances when we run into somebody far from our normal routine that we never expected to see. Kim has a brother-in-law who's lived in Carleton for all of his nearly 60 years, and he knows everyone, not only in Carleton, but in the entire Downriver area. Whenever I would be out with him, we'd almost always run into someone he knows, and every time we were going out together, I would say, we're going to see someone you know. Many years ago, we were on vacation with Kim's sister and that brother-in-law in the Upper Peninsula. We were at Tequamanon Falls, and walking in the parking lot when, you guessed it, Jerry ran into someone he knew. Now, we might call those encounters coincidences, or fate, or chance. But did you know that there really is nothing that's left to chance in God's world? And there are no events that are merely coincidences. Now most times we don't know the reason for the amazing arrangement of circumstances that brings us to a place and a time and an unexpected meeting. But there are times when God does and has given the reason. When he's revealed in Scripture his purpose for orchestrating events the way he has to bring people together at a particular place and time and for a particular purpose. He did that, for example, in the story of Joseph that you may remember in the very first book of your Bible, Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And at the end of that story, with all of its twists and turns, including the treachery of Joseph's brothers and their plot against him, God brings them together again unexpectedly. And Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And then Joseph goes on to explain the good that God arranged out of it. Now the tiny book of Philemon that I've asked you to turn to was written as a result of a seemingly chance encounter between the Apostle Paul and a runaway slave named Onesimus. Philemon, after whom the book is named, owned Onesimus as his slave. But Onesimus ran away and therefore, and, and before he did so, he apparently took some money from his owner. Onesimus left the relatively small town of Colossae to go to Rome that had its nearly 900,000 inhabitants. And undoubtedly he went there, hoping that he could simply mix in, meld into the large population, and not be taken into custody for the crime of running away and of theft. But in God's good providence, he somehow comes into the company of Paul. Paul, who was also in Rome, imprisoned there for the first time of two times that he would be imprisoned in, the, in Rome in his ministry. And not only does Onesimus meet Paul... But it turns out, Paul is friends with Onesimus' owner back in Colossae, Philemon. 
And so Paul is faced with, on the one hand, ministering to this runaway slave, on the other hand, doing the right thing, which is returning him to his owner, Philemon. And so as we, over the next couple of weeks, look through this very small but marvelous letter, we're going to see that Paul does indeed send Onesimus back to Philemon. But he sends him back accompanied by this short, personal, and moving letter. But the Onesimus who left Philemon's employ and the city of Colossae does not return the same man because he has come to faith in Christ. And he is now returning as the slave of Christ. The book of Philemon then offers a concise and profound view of what biblical forgiveness is. And therefore, it provides a beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel. Today and for two more Sundays, we're going to look at this marvelous letter together. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, you have the words of life. There's no place we can go other than to you. So we have come to you. We've opened your word. And therein you speak. We ask your spirit to take your words, move upon our minds and our hearts. Grant us clear minds and open hearts so that we will be changed by what you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me quickly explain who these people are in verses 1 and 2. Paul was responsible for the founding of the church at Colossae, though he had never been there personally. The church was started as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus, the book of Acts tells us, for three years. And he mentions in verse 1, Timothy as well is with him. Now there are other people with Paul that he will mention at the end of the letter, but he mentions Timothy here at the very beginning. And the reason he singles out Timothy is undoubtedly because Paul's protege is this young Timothy, and one day the mantle of leadership is going to pass to him. And through the connection that between Paul in Ephesus and the founding of the church in Colossae, a man named Epaphras went and founded the church after being influenced by Paul's ministry in the city of Colossae. And through that connection between Paul and Ephesus and the founding of the church in this other town, He came into acquaintance, Paul did, with Philemon. And he apparently, Paul, apparently led Philemon to the Lord. Now we know that Philemon is a wealthy man. We know this because, one, he owns slaves, and because verse 2 says, the church in Colossae meets in his home. He had a large enough home for the church there to meet in his house. Aphia is almost certainly Philemon's wife. Paul includes her in the opening because he makes his appeal on behalf of the runaway slave Onesimus. He's going to try to influence Philemon to take him back and to to forgive him. And he includes the wife because she's as much a party to that decision as to 
as to what to do when Onesimus returns, as is her husband, because according to the custom of the time, she had day-to-day responsibility for the slaves. Verse 2 mentions Archippus. And Archippus is probably the son of Philemon and Aphia. And he's in the ministry. Paul calls Philemon a fellow worker, but he calls Archippus, as you see, a fellow soldier. And Paul mentions Archippus as being in the ministry in his other letter to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 4. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, it says tell Archippus, and so it may well be that Archippus' position in the ministry was as a missionary pastor, as a church planter going out now from Colossae to spread the word. That's why they're saying tell Archippus. It's not necessarily the case that when this letter is read that he's going to be there because he is out uh, on evangelistic ministry. Now, I've said that Philemon and his family live in Colossae and that they're part of the church there, but how do I know that? I know that because, as I say, there are two letters in the New Testament that went to the church in that city, the book of Colossians and now this personal letter to one of its members, Philemon. In the book of Colossians, though, this is what it says. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me, Paul says. He is coming with, now notice who? Onesimus. And so the book of Colossians clearly identifies that that book was written to the church in the city of Colossae. And now Paul, is, Paul says there that that letter is being sent along with this runaway slave named Onesimus. And so they are going to come with two letters in hand. The letter of the book of Colossians and this personal letter to Philemon. Now verse 1 is significant in part for what it does not say. In most letters that you have in your New Testament written by Paul, and most of the letters in the New Testament were written by him, in most of those he begins at the very uh, outset by saying that he's an apostle. He often does that because what's going to follow in the letter that he's writing is going to be heavy doctrine that requires apostolic authority or because he's going to correct false teaching, again requiring apostolic authority. And so he invokes apostleship. And you see this at the beginning of most of his letters. Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Again, 1 Corinthians, Paul called to be an apostle by Christ Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He says the same thing in the second letter that he sends to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then Colossians, again, very first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But he begins this letter without, I'm an apostle. And that's because this is going to be more personal than an apostolic appeal. And so the greeting here at the beginning of this small letter is significant for what it does not say, but it's also important, of course, for what it does say. And notice again verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now he calls himself a prisoner, and he does that in a few letters in your New Testament, four to be exact that are called the prison letters, the prison epistles. 
And that's because while Paul was in this first imprisonment in Rome, he wrote four letters in your New Testament, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and, and Philemon. But it's interesting how and when he invokes the designation as a prisoner in those prison, those prison letters. He doesn't invoke it at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, for example, even though he's in prison when he writes that letter as, as well. But he doesn't do it at the, at the beginning because the theme there is joy and partnership in the gospel. And so in verse 1, he says, Paul, and I'm an apostle. But then he goes on to say, Paul, and I'm writing to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. He makes reference to his chain later in the letter but only as part of reporting what's happening in his life. He says this, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And so what he's saying is this, I'm in prison, you all, you all know that, but I also want you to know that it's all good. And it's all good because God is always at work no matter our circumstances, no matter how adverse those circumstances. And even though I'm in chains, the truth is those who are really captive are those who have to listen to me give them the gospel. <laughs> and as a result, the whole, palace, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel as a result of my imprisonment. Or in the case of the Colossians, he mentions his imprisonment in the very last chapter. At the very end, he says simply this, remember my chains. Just as an aside, I would say this to you, dear friends, that the spread of the gospel has opponents everywhere and always. And those who would deign to take the gospel into lands where it is not welcome, and that is many throughout our world, put themselves in danger. Right now, we have men like Pastor Saeed Abedini, who has been in, uh, in prison in Iran for a very, very long time. He was, excuse me, his wife was scheduled to come to Dearborn this next month in April. My wife was trying to find out about the circumstances of that so she and some of uh, our ladies could go and be with her. And she was told by the person organizing that event that they have put that off because they're in discussions regarding Pastor Abedini's release. And so let's remember, continue to remember him and that family in prayer. And so Paul sometimes simply mentions that he's a prisoner, but he invokes the fact that he's a prisoner before offering something that's going to be difficult. So he'll mention it, I'm in prison, but it's all good, like he did to the Philippians. Remember my chains in prayer at the end of the letter to the Colossians. But there are times where he'll strategically invoke the fact that I'm a prisoner before he is going to instruct the readers to do something difficult. Here's an example. In Ephesians, he doesn't start the letter to the Ephesians out, as I said, by saying, I'm a prisoner, like he does Philemon. He says, I'm an apostle. But then in the middle, right in the middle of the six chapters of Ephesians, chapter 4 begins this way, as a prisoner for the Lord then. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And now he's going to go on in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to give the practical, the application section of that marvelous letter. At the beginning of him telling them, here are some things that you're going to have to do that are difficult, he reminds them that he's a prisoner for the Lord. 
And here in Philemon, he invokes that prisoner status at the beginning because what he's going to tell his friend Philemon to do is hard. And I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, if you haven't pulled that out already, I encourage you to do that. The very first thing I want you to see from these first seven verses of the 25 that are the letter of Philemon, the first thing I want you to see is that Christian living is hard. The reason that Paul breaks his normal approach in the greeting of this letter and says, I'm a prisoner at the beginning, is because he's wanting to remind his friend Philemon Look, there are things that have to be done for the sake of Christ that are difficult. I'm doing that. And now I'm going to implore you to do that as well. What I'm going to implore you to do is forgive the one who ran away and who stole from you. And he invokes the fact that he's in hard circumstances, but that Christian living is hard. He's a prisoner of Christ, I might say, add, just as an aside. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, not a prisoner of Caesar, not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Even in my imprisonment, the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. Now hear this, friends. God calls us to hard things. And note how I say that. God calls us to hard things. It's not just that bad things happen, but God ordains trials God ordains trials, and he desires that his good purpose be achieved in those trials. You all have heard me say many times over the years that you are in one of three circumstances at all times. You are either in a trial, you've recently emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. Now, why can I say that with confidence? Because that's life in a fallen world. And yet those things are not random. God appoints those things for his ultimately good ends. But that purpose and those good ends will only be achieved if we obey in the trial, not disobey to get out of it or sin because we're in it. I'm convinced that as much as we decry what's called the prosperity gospel, you know what I mean by that? The prosperity gospel, the prosperity preachers that say it's God's will for you to be wealthy and healthy and only have good things happen in your life. Nonsense. Absolute false teaching and nonsense. God Almighty brings difficulty into our lives. God Almighty ordains trials in our lives for ultimately good purposes. And I'm convinced that as much as we decry that, many of us believe it. We say, you know, I don't believe God has ordained that I be a millionaire. Okay. (laughs) But then when something difficult happens to you, what do you think? Well, surely God wouldn't want me in this situation. And when you think that, you are spouting the prosperity gospel. Surely God would want me in better circumstances. When you start a sentence, friends, with God wouldn't want... Let me encourage you to remember that if God doesn't want it, He can change it. And we have no right to sin against God, to say, in effect, we're going to help Him out because He somehow messed up by putting us in a difficult situation. And that difficult situation can often be a relationship. That relationship could be your marriage. 
That relationship could be the spouse that you before God said, I will be committed to for the rest of my natural life. And yet, some of you think you can take it upon yourself to say, I'm going to break this thing up because I don't like it anymore. And in so doing, you are denying the fact that God calls Christians to hard things. And he calls us to do hard things. He called Paul to hard things. Paul is calling Philemon to a very hard thing now, to forgive. And God calls us not to sin against him by complaining in the situation that we are in. Friends, Christian living is hard. Now, I should add quickly, for those who will obey in it, it doesn't seem hard. That's why Paul can be in jail and he can still be joyful. That's why he can write a letter to the Philippians and the four chapters of the letter to the Philippians, while he's under house arrest in Rome, are all about them. Why can he be concerned about them rather than saying, poor me? Why do you never find Paul doing that in his writings? Because he says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. In verse 13, it's where he says famously, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Christian living is hard. Secondly, Christian living is shared. Christian living is shared. Notice that the letter is addressed not only to Philemon and his family, but to the church in Colossae. Now, have you thought about that? I mean, here's verses 1 and 2. Paul says, it's me, along with Timothy, and I'm writing to Philemon, and I'm writing to Aphia, and your son Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. (laughs) Now, you're writing me a letter, Philemon, but you're also addressing it to the whole church? That's putting the pressure on, isn't it? And that's exactly what Paul intends to do. He's putting appropriate church family pressure on Philemon. Now you think about that. Think about that in our individualized culture. My relationship with the Lord is completely me and Jesus alone in the garden. And the Bible knows nothing of this individualized approach to the Christian life. The Bible does not see our lives as disconnected. The family, in fact, is the number one metaphor in Scripture to describe the church. There are a number of metaphors. There's the bride. There is the the building. The church is the vine, and Christ is the, the branches. There are all of those metaphors, but the number one used is that the church is God's household, and God is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters adopted into the same family. Do you see that? Christian living is shared, that it's a team sport, if you will. And we are not lone rangers, we are not independent contractors for Jesus. And so the worst thing that you can do then, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your difficulties, the worst thing you can do is to withdraw to yourself. But isn't that the temptation for us so many times? When I'm in difficulty, I don't want to be with God's people, I don't want to be with other people. That's the temptation, and it is the very opposite of what we should do. Christian living is hard. Christian living is to be shared. And thirdly, Christian living is evident. Christian living is to be evident. That is, 
it is to be evident in your life that you're a Christian. Christian living is to be evident. In verses 4 through 7, Paul commends Philemon for the evidence in his life of true Christian character. And in so doing, he's reminding Philemon of who he is. And that what he's being asked to do is consistent with who Philemon is. Now we're going to see some of that in just a bit. We're going to see in verses 4 through 7 what Paul reminds Philemon about who he, Philemon, is. But he's doing this because he's summoning Philemon to think about who you are in Christ. And think about the evidence in your life that you belong to Christ. And now he set him up to then say, consistent with that is forgiveness. And he's then going to make that plea. But Christian living is to be evident in the lives of God's people. That's why I've titled this message at the top of the outline, What Kind of Person Would Do Such a Thing? Now, often we use that in a negative way. What kind of person would do such a bad thing? But what kind of person would do the kind of thing that Paul is calling Philemon to do? To forgive the slave and to receive him as a brother. And to not inflict any punishment we're going to see in the coming weeks on him. What kind of person would do something like that? Well, it's the kind of person that Paul's going to describe that is Philemon in verses 4 through 7. Let me ask you, if you were accused of being a Christian, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? There was enough evidence to convict, as it were, Philemon. Now, what does Paul say in verses 4 through 7 about this evidence of his Christian character? I have several things listed for you in your outline. We will go through those somewhat quickly. This evidence of Christian character is seen in its effect, in its effect. Verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. So every time that Paul goes to pray and he remembers Philemon, immediately his mind goes to thankfulness. It's had an effect, his ministry, Philemon's friendship and his Christian character has had an effect on Paul. And the effect is such that when I think of this brother in the Lord, I'm immediately thankful to the Lord for who he is, and as we're going to see, what he does. So Christian living is evident in its effect. It's also seen, secondly, in its reputation. Its reputation. In verse 5, he says, I thank God because, verse 5, I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now the word I hear is written in the Greek language in such a way as to be continually. It's literally, I continue to hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, ironically, if you think about it for a moment, from whom is Paul hearing about Philemon? Paul's in Rome. So from whom is he hearing about him? Ironically, one of the people from whom he may have heard about Philemon is the runaway slave Onesimus. In all probability, Onesimus, now converted is telling Paul about his master and about his friend and about the effect that his ministry has had on Onesimus and, and on others. So Christian living is evidenced in its effect, in its reputation. Thirdly, it's seen in its love. It's seen in its love. He says, I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I've given you a working definition of love a number of times. Let me remind you of it. 
A working definition of biblical love is this. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Doing what is in the best interest of another. And what Paul is saying here is, I have heard about, I continually hear about your love for all of his holy people. You're continually doing what's in the best interest of other people. And he's reminding them then of the sacrificial nature of biblical love because he's going to ask him to sacrifice something a little bit later in the letter. Love has to be an indispensable characteristic of the life of a true believer. It must be evidenced in the life of a genuine Christian. 1 John 3 says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Now let me just... Say, and we'll move on, friends, but let me just say, you cannot love each other, as 1 John 3.14 says, you cannot love each other if you do not know each other and therefore know how best to do what's in the best interest of another. So again, it's a call to integrate, integrate our lives with one another. Christianity is not a solo sport. And he says, and I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Apparently a faith, a belief, that's the same word in your New Testament, faith and belief. And what Philemon claims to believe is apparently evidenced in what he does. And of course the Bible says many times, most famously in James chapter 2, faith without what? Faith without works is dead. And so it's seen in its effect and in its reputation and in its love. And fourthly, Christian living is seen in its fellowship. It's evident in its fellowship. Verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective. Now the word that's translated partnership in verse 6 is the Greek word koinonia. Many of us are familiar with that. It has at its root koinonia common. And so there is a partnership in what we have in common. That's why that's a perfectly good and very good translation of that Greek word. Or communion, actually, is sometimes the English translation of koinonia. We have communion, and we actually observe communion and the Lord's table because of our common bond in, in Christ. It emphasizes unity. It's sometimes translated fellowship, and that's why I have the word fellowship in, in your outline. It's seen in its fellowship, koinonia fellowship. But you've got to understand, dear friends, that contrary to what we normally think, fellowship is more than a potluck, much more than a potluck. It is what we have in common in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our salvation in Him, but also in the mission to which He has called us. It is unity around a cause. And verse 6, Paul says, I pray that your partnership with us, they are unified in this cause. Philemon and Paul are partners in this thing called Great Commission Incorporated. And then fifthly, Christian living is evidenced in its experience. Its experience. Verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us, and then he goes on to say, may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. The word that's translated understanding is a word that's sometimes translated knowledge, but it's a particular Greek word that means experiential knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge. But knowing something because you are experiencing 
it. And so he's saying, I pray that as you serve the Lord, you will experience all the good things that he has for his people. Not primarily material, but spiritual fruit. Things like joy and peace. Hear this, friends. If you don't have those things, it may be because you are not partnering in the gospel like Philemon was with Paul. If you're someone who came into this room without the joy of the Lord, without the peace of the Lord, I want to summon you, I want to call you to serve the Lord and think about the great privilege that it is to be involved with other brothers and sisters in the work of the Lord. And it means keep serving when you don't feel like it. And there are plenty of times when we don't feel like it, aren't there? John Piper wrote a helpful book that I would commend to you. When I don't desire God. And in it he describes what to do when I don't desire God. When I don't feel like it. Christian living is evident as well. Two more. In its priority. In its priority. Now I say that because at the end of verse 6 he says, I want you to experience, have experiential knowledge of every good thing that we share. But notice the last phrase at the end of verse 6. For the sake of Christ. That we share for the sake of Christ. Sometimes people will say, and, and I, consider it, I consider it blasphemous to use the Lord's name in vain. And so if we just, and I'm just saying it to, to make the point. If we say for Christ's sake or for God's sake, will you get your act together? You see, but the Bible speaks often of for Christ's sake. Not in a blasphemous way. But for us to think about the priority for which we do all the things we do, it is ultimately for the sake of Christ. Yes, I do things on a horizontal plane for others, but ultimately it is that vertical relationship with God and with Christ. Christian living is seen in its priority. And when you are called to do hard things, you have to focus your mind upon for whom you are ultimately doing this hard thing. It is ultimately for Christ's sake. And then lastly, Christian living is seen in its care, in its care. Verse 7, your love, Philemon, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. That word refreshed, you could write in the word renewed. You have renewed the hearts of the Lord's people. And so the idea is this, you, Philemon, have a church that meets in your home, your partners in the gospel. You care about the advance of the Lord's glory. It's for Christ's sake. You care about all of that. And in so doing, you have refreshed, renewed the hearts of God's people with whom you're in relationship and you find them down from time to time, discouraged and needing you to, as the Bible teaches, come alongside and encourage. People whose batteries have worn down and need to be recharged. And you have done that for God's people. And so I encourage you, Christian friend, in the midst of our relationships together, to use those relationships, to use the opportunities that we have to interact with one another for the purpose of encouraging and renewing and refreshing one another. We're going to dismiss this meeting in just a few minutes. When we do, we're going to have approximately 30 minutes of what we call cafe community. That is a strategic time for us, not to simply talk about the weather, but thank God for the weather. Not to talk about the Tigers or the Red Wings, and certainly not to talk about the Lions. 
But it is a strategic time for us to interact with one another and to know what's going on in each other's lives. And one of my great delights is to see as the fruit of that times where you'll see a brother or sister praying with one another as a result of what they're talking about in cafe community. Now I have your take-home truth at the bottom then of your outline. Christian living is the fruit of genuine Christian character. Christian living is the fruit of genuine Christian character. And in verses 4 through 7, Paul's saying, Philemon, this is your character. And now I want to see that come to full fruition in this particular instance, in the life of this runaway slave, as I appeal to you to forgive him that we will see in the next two weeks. One commentator has said this, Man is never more like God than when he forgives. And the character that Philemon has that's been outlined for us in verses 4 through 7, that character is character that emulates the character of God. That's the character that Christians are called to have, character like the character of God. And man is never more like God than when he forgives. Now, why do we say that? Exodus 34 says this, The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This is the Lord speaking of himself and he's saying, this is the kind of God I am and this is the kind of character that I have. And if we are going to be like God and express God-like, Christ-like character, then it means we're going to have to be forgiving people. Proverbs 19 says, It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. We see this over and over in Scripture. The prodigal parable that Jesus told shows us the heart of the father of that son, which is an image of the father toward us. As we have run from God and we don't have the right to come back to God, but he not only doesn't turn us away, he runs toward us and embraces us and forgives us. That's what Christian character does. Now, we're going to see in the next two weeks a picture of this forgiveness, but it flows out of Christian character. Dear friend, many of you are in relationships, and, I, and my, heart, my heart aches. My heart aches for husbands and wives right now who are in relationships where you are contemplating to do the unthinkable. And if you're not forgiving, it is because you are not evidencing these traits in your life. Philemon is able to forgive, and Paul can summon him to forgive because these things are true in his life. So instead, friends, of looking to the offender to change before you forgive, look to change so you can forgive. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this marvelous little book from the pen of the great apostle to his friend. We thank you for Philemon and the character that is expressed in the words of this this letter. And we thank you for the summons that this is to us to be like Jesus. Lord, we are never more like you than when we are willing to forgive. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move on the hearts of many and convict us of our unwillingness to forgive. May even this day, maybe even in the next few minutes, may reconciliation occur between people. And I pray that reconciliation would occur within homes so that for the sake of Christ, people might see something that's extraordinary and hard for a greater reward.
We commit these things to you for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.